This podcast is brought to you by the website of doom.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode six of Aaron Fever Talks 2. My name is Aaron Fever, and I am talking to Joseph Scrimshaw, who is a writer, a comedian, and an all round Star Wars nut. Um, which I try and uh, avoid talking to because I'm sure he's sick of it for most of the podcast. But uh, what I do try and talk to him about is uh, kind of getting into stand-up and getting into writing and and uh, just wearing uh, many hats, as I put it in the episode, which now looking back, I probably could have been more eloquent about. Uh, but uh, it's a fun talk. He's a guy who I look up to in a lot of ways because he's someone who uh, has a lot of similar... Um, interesting goals to myself so uh, and I've known him for about four or five years now so it's been uh, nice I always enjoy these chats when I get to talk to people who I've known for a while but I get to talk to them about things that I wouldn't normally in a in a like hanging out situation because it's kind of weird to ask some of these questions in that vein but now I get to delve in a little bit deeper and that's fun this podcast exists because of Patreon. We've got a couple of extra Patreon supporters in the last couple of weeks, and I'm very thankful for those. Uh, people like Blake and uh, David and uh, Widget, uh, some cool people, uh, most of whom I know, and I'm very appreciative of them helping me out uh, with these projects that I'm doing. Uh, that means there'll be a brand new Word a Week coming at your faces soon uh, those videos will start uh, by the time the next one of these podcasts come out so uh, by all means look out for that on needcoffee.com and on my youtube page and uh, that's my plugging i guess because uh, i don't have sponsors so this is the last you'll hear of me talking to you individually the rest will just be me talking to joseph uh, so i'll just quickly squeeze in patreon.com forward slash Aaron Fever. Thanks. Now let's get to the podcast. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good. Um, I've uh, been very busy trying to do comics book stuff today, so uh, admin and the like, but you know. Awesome. Uh, how was, because you're, how long have you been working for yourself now? Are we doing the podcast? Is this the podcast? If you, I can, I can cut stuff out if you want to keep things private. But sure. No, no, I'm curious. Is this the podcast? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I never know when people have like a little preamble of like, "Hey, let's just chit chat," and then we'll start the podcast. Well, I kind of, I feel like I, I usually start it. I use I don't I don't have an official like okay now I'm going to record but I I, <laughs> okay. I, I always but I always do it in the sense of like I, t- I chat to people and if we naturally get into it straight away great um I find I've been finding more often than not though I'm just been confusing people more than anything else <laughs> well that's a valid way to do a podcast I guess keep them on their toes yeah keep it real yeah it's so real that they don't know what's going on <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you're what you want to know, like how long I have been having not a job, not a real job. Well, no, I'm not because I listen, I I'm in that boat where <laughs> I know that we get shit from family members for telling people that we do what we do. <laughs> oh, I'm I, that's that ship has long sailed for me. That is not uh, that's not an issue at this point. They all get it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so that I get that. I guess that loops around. How long now 
have you been <laughs> doing this as your like uh, you could say that you're because you're you're one of those people that you wear many hats so what yes do you, what i do, do you, so what do you call yourself straight out the bat do you say like i am an entertainer or i am a writer i am a comedian <laughs> an entertainer i find is the most open to misinterpretation because mm-hmm. that could easily be I'm a stripper, which would be fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But, I have literally uh, seen you dance on stage and take off items of clothing, <laughs> so it wouldn't be. I have actually away. done that. Yeah, I have appeared on stage nude, but no one wanted that. It was for the sake of comedy, not for titillation. Well, it's all nail nudity is always comedy. I feel even like women who go to see male strippers are usually laughing out loud. Yeah, maybe out of joy. I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to ask a lady. Uh, to answer your actual question, uh, I'm not wearing pants right now, so there's Good. that. Uh, I am entertaining myself. That's not right. Um, no, it's it's always been an effort for me to boil things down, both in reality of how many hats I'm wearing and what I tell people. So I'm pretty firmly committed to comedian and writer because almost anything I would want to do would fall under those general umbrellas. Right. And which one would you lean towards out of those two? Oh, I don't want to. That's my gift and my curse. (laughs) (laughs) I really, really like performing. I don't feel like myself if I go too long without performing. Mm. But also, I also like being alone and I like telling stories and I like telling my own stories. Like I would never be happy just being an actor and telling other people's stories or, you know, stand-up certainly can have an element of storytelling and has a huge amount of it right now, especially in the alt scene, but that I would never feel totally fulfilled with that either. I would start brainstorming of other stories I want to tell by actual writing. And what what did you gravitate towards first? Like, what did you get to do stand-up uh, first or did you have something kind of published first? No, I came to stand up much later in life. My the basic short version of my little artistic journey is that uh, I have been artsy my entire life. Like one of my literal earliest memories is drawing a picture of Batman, <laughs> which explains a lot of my life and also why my parents and family don't question what I do because they're like, "Yeah, you wouldn't shut up about." Star Wars and making jokes since you were born, so this is really not a surprise to us. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah. So uh, my family just is one of the strange DNA traits. We are all in just have uh, natural talent at drawing. Okay. Just visual art. So I felt like, oh, I just should do that. So I kind of dabbled with other things, and I went to college to get a visual art degree. And I realized that my favorite part of the art classes was when we would do presentations about our paintings and get to talk about them to the rest of the class. And I would make jokes and get laughs and I would feel much better. And then I realized, oh, well, maybe I should do that. Uh, So I really started doing sketch comedy in improv. And then I only started writing really because I wanted to come up with my own material. So it was, I didn't start writing out of like, I'm going to write the great American novel or screenplay. I was like, I want to be on stage more, and I want to come up with my own funny things that I'm saying, so I'll write it for myself. And then that eventually developed into, uh, I'm a writer. And, and it's so hard to rely on people, especially in the early days of like, you know, hey, let's collaborate on this thing, and then people disappear. <laughs> oh, yes, they do. Yes, they do. <laughs> So what, so what do your parents do for a living or did for a living if they're retired or anything like that? 
Uh, well, they're both dead. No, I'm oh, just kidding. Yeah. Uh, no, sorry. That was a horrible thing to do. Uh, no, uh, my father has worked in the printing industry his entire life. My father is a uh, – they, they both come from a, a small town in northern Minnesota. Uh, basically, the movie Fargo is kind of making fun of their lives. Uh, so that's kind of who they, a little bit who they are in, in a very broad sense. Uh, and they got married super, super young. And my dad has always just been doing whatever he has to 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 make money. Uh, and he fell really early on into working in the printing industry. So he was a salesman for a long time, and I learned the horrors of that as a youth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now he he work, he still works in the printing industry, and he does, like, customer relations. Uh, so he doesn't actually have to, like, go out and do terrifying death of a salesman, soul-sucking kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and my mother... Uh, she was a nurse for a little while when I was very young and then she decided to go back to school and then she never really left school (laughs) and she has a horrible amount of debt. I just paid off my student loans and I think my mother is still paying off her student loans. Wow. So it's a very, I come from a very strange family. Uh, and then my, my mother had a, a battle with cancer about a decade ago that she beat but there are a bunch of uh, radiating problems from the chemotherapy. So right now she has some mobility issues. So mostly what she does right now is she kind of takes care of herself and she watches a lot of Jimmy Kimmel Live. <laughs> okay. She watches The View and then she talks to me about it. <laughs> that sounds something very akin to my mother who uh... – <laughs> is, is that – She's a professional view watcher as well. Yeah, well, they they referred it has a, the the UK version of it, which is kind of what is shown in Ireland as well. Is uh, is it has a different name. Uh, it's called Loose Women. Are, are you serious? I am dead. I am deadly serious. It's called Loose Women. <laughs> I assume they're trying to allude to loose lips, but that's yeah. not even any better. <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> but yeah she she enjoys watching that uh, just for she can be riled up about opinions and um she watches a show called the jeremy kyle show which is basically the uk version of jerry springer okay where a man will basically shout at uh, her- heroin addicts about uh their relationship problems that sounds fun yeah, it's interesting. It's it's something, all right. Um, but like my my parents are kind of similar in the sense of like my dad. Like I mean, he was a milkman for years. Uh, my parents, wow. Like, yeah, they got they both and they got married when they were like you know twenty. But like uh, like he was a milkman for years. He his last job before he retired recently was like a bread delivery guy. So he was always in that kind of vein. He looked after breakfast essentially. And, um, and my mom was kind of similar in the sense that like she she did a lot of training later in life like kind of like after I was born and stuff but um, to them uh, my life to them is still very much a mystery uh, like okay. when I try and explain to them like what I do and, and you know and they're kind of like okay but did you hear there's a, there's a like a, a call service job going uh, you know in this area <laughs> are um, they confused but supportive or are they actually like think you're throwing your life away kind of thing um they're 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 confused and just worried about my money like every time i yeah. talk to them about something i'm doing and you know yourself like especially early days when you do shows and stuff you're not really getting paid for it um, no no <laughs> that's a long old slog before that starts happening but um they yeah once they kind of know that i'm able to support myself they're happy uh but yeah that's just their their worry most of the time which i think is a valid one 
Um, yeah. But, like, what was the first paid job that you got for doing oh kind God. of creative stuff? The creative stuff I've done uh, is has been so all over the map financially. Like, I've done a lot of different things. My first, I would say my first sort of uh, big success where my parents really weren't worried about me as much uh, was the Minnesota Fringe Festival. Obviously, I know you know the Fringe Festival. Yeah. Uh, and the the one in Minnesota started right around the same time that I started doing sketch and theater stuff, too. And uh, I became pretty successful in the Minnesota Fringe Festival, and I had a couple of shows where I made like a significant amount of money off of doing a comedy play that I wrote. And that was really impressive to my parents, and I think they stopped worrying as much about <laughs> financial reality then. I think it helps, too, that it was a local festival in a sense of like they could see people go to the show as well. Like, if, yeah, if yeah. You weren't kind of like, like, cause for myself, I disappear to like Dragon Con or something like that. And I try and come back <laughs> and tell them that, like, we had lots of people show up at our thing. And they're like, okay, honey, that's <laughs> it, fine. <laughs> it does sound totally imaginary, especially if you fly to a different country and say, I've gone to a thing called Dragon Con. No, it's real. And thousands of people watched me and laughed, which they do uh, watch you and laugh. Uh, but yeah, it sounds totally imaginary. And uh, uh, but like, when were you always in uh, Minneapolis? Were you always like in, in and around that region, or where did you yeah, move for, around? Uh, no, for a ton of I moved around a ton when I was a youth. Uh, my like I said, my parents were from a small town in Minnesota named Brainerd, and then we moved to Portland, Oregon, for a few years, and then we moved back to Minnesota, and we lived, I think, like eight different places in Minneapolis uh, or in Minnesota before we settled into where I actually grew up, which is in Minneapolis proper. Uh, and then, so then I was really, because I had that youth, I, of moving around and making friends and losing friends, community meant a lot to me. So right. as I started my career, I started making friends and like really close friends that were family. So I kind of wanted to leave, but it seemed like, oh, no, I shouldn't. This is great. And I had a really nice career in Minneapolis. I was making good money from a combination of doing my own shows, which were anything from writing and producing a play to an hour of stand-up that I would put on at a theater. Uh, and I would I had a lot of corporate writing jobs. I did a lot of writing for General Mills because they're based in – Minneapolis. Mm. Uh, and then uh, there just got to be a, a, a ceiling of, I want to not just get by, I would like to make real money so I can do things like take vacations. <laughs> <laughs> and not uh, so there's a combination I get sick of, or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's a combination of, if, if you're going to work this hard at creating creative stuff and you're, you are creating the kind of creative stuff that you can get paid a real living wage for, why would you settle for, this is good, but I'm just getting by. Um, and then for me, there's also just the issue of permanence. Like, I, I think I lean towards having existential dread anyway of just, what do you mean we die and then nothing? That's probably what it is, but that's not cool. Um, so then to watch the same thing happen to the stuff that I created eventually started to bug me, uh, because in particular with sketch stuff or theater stuff, 
people would love it and remember it for about two or three years. And then it was like it never happened, no matter how much money you made, no matter how many accolades you got for it, yeah. uh, it goes away. So that's, that motivated me to say, well, I want to do things like stand-up where the goal is to eventually record an album and it will continue to exist. Right. And I want to do podcasts because they will continue to exist. And, uh, and, the, and the comedy yeah, album it, concept is kind of something that I think is having a resurgence now as well because it kind of disappeared for a little while. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, when I did uh, one of my first albums that I did in Minneapolis, I contacted Press Connections and said, hey, I'm doing this. Uh, do you want to do an interview or anything? And one person says, like, sure, I'd like to do an interview. I'm really fascinated because I didn't know that comedy albums existed. <laughs> <laughs> So didn't uh, I thought Bob Newhart and Bill Cosby did a few, and then it just kind of stopped? Like, uh, no, that's yeah, not they, they, they were all, they were released on vinyl, but did they seem to skip the cassette period? Yeah, there was no, no cassette, no cassette comedy at all. <laughs> uh, but it's yeah, it's nice to see. I think and I think uh, Spotify and, and just people being able to listen to them on the go has probably helped uh, their return. Um, like how many, I know two that you've done. Is there more? Yeah, I put out, I've put out a total of three. Okay. Um, and the, yeah, and the, the first one, I think I've got like 20 copies left of or something like that. And that will probably be it for it. And then I did the larger project one, Flawfest. It was a comedy and music album. And then I just put one out last year. The Star Wars was one, about, right? The Star Wars and the social justice one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm working on a new one now. <laughs> it made sense to me, and <laughs> thankfully, it made sense to other people. Well, I feel like in the like the Venn diagram of like Joseph Scrimshaw's interests, like you know, uh, Star Wars and Subtle Justice, like it has you just in that sliver in the middle. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's totally where it came from. Is all of the uh, advice you ever get is, especially for stand up, is just right now is to be truthful because. Mm. Uh, a lot of people are very, I think because of social media uh, and everybody uh, being very aware of how jokes are constructed, there's a little bit of I see what you did there reaction from audiences when you are making a blatant joke joke, right? which makes it all the more important to actually just do comedy about stuff that you actually care about that is what is on your mind. Yeah, And I had that on my mind and I was like, well... Uh, the the things that I'm legitimately thinking about right now are Star Wars and social justice. So I'll see if I can mash them together. And it worked surprisingly well. And so that was like about a year ago, right? Yeah. So if you were to be put on the spot and to theme a comedy album for <laughs> Joseph Scrimshaw right now, what would it be? Yes. I think I'm, I'm working on a comedy album that is uh, sort of about the idea of how you construct your identity in the 21st century. Oh. Yeah, I made a list of all the notes I make of, I'd like to kind of do a bit about this, and then I looked for what was the thematic core of it, like what, what connected the bits. And almost all of them were things about having uh, fights with people online. I am really amused by a lot of billboards that try to tell you stuff about yourself like as a kind of as a form of advertising whether it's intended or not okay uh yeah so i just thought like oh here's the kind the common theme of finding trying to find who you are and 
getting all of this input from the outside world, trying to tell you who you are, either out of anger or ignorance or wanting to sell you something. And I think it's very great that social media has such a powerful, just be yourself, just be you, just be loud and proud. But there's plenty of the world that never, ever wants you to be you. And it's hard for anyone to figure out who they are, yeah. like, truly. Well, I think, too, is that, like, and I think that's something that uh, if you do things like stand-up, and you have to think about a lot because you're selling yourself a lot of the time. So you have to be aware of who you are and, and to have that, quote-unquote, personal brand. Um, yeah. And that's that's a weird thing to have to look at is to like, kind of see, like, what am I as a product? Yeah, exactly. And I feel like this is, uh, like I said, kind of my gift and curse as a human being and certainly as an entertainer is having a hard time trying to decide where I want to put my focus. So I feel weird about there are a handful of things I could run with as my personal brand because I honestly like them or there's something truthful about me. But I kind of feel like I'm curating myself okay. and saying, I'm going to be the guy who loves Star Wars and hates Kale. That will probably do well for me. <laughs> comedy wise <laughs> but it feels dishonest ultimately right i remember your kale period it was fun <laughs> yeah it's it's still going because other people haven't forgot it's great personal branding because i've gotten two or three tweets this week saying ha 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 meeting kale i bet you'd hate this <laughs> <laughs> and you never know what's going to stick with people too so that that's a part of it yeah it was the it was the taco a batman eating a taco thing a a a, a a flight of fancy that took hold or was that something that you were pushing that was absolutely a flight of fancy that took hold okay. and then i was like okay i'll i i think this is legitimately funny i was just going to san diego comic-con and i hate sending out tweets that are just information i hate just saying i'm going to san diego comic-con now so i wanted <laughs> to say something funny so i said i hope i see batman eating a taco and then everybody responded like well of course you will and then that kind of annoyed me <laughs> because it really isn't easy i have been to many many conventions that was three years ago i think and i still haven't seen batman eating a taco just organically in the wild no it's, it was like a fun treasure hunt online for what because people were sending you pictures of like batman eating a hot dog and you were like nope that's not, it's close <laughs> but no cigar <laughs> not good enough yeah i just did a podcast uh for my obsessed podcast uh i have a patreon and i do a bonus episode i just recorded an episode all about the batman eating a taco issue and i think i'm gonna continue to pursue that convention season's coming up and i think i'm gonna be more vocal again about my desire to see batman eating a taco <laughs> i was very pleased one night coming uh, back to my hotel from from dragon con at like 4 a.m and um you know kind of the uh where uh this the street that um the parade goes down which is kind of at the back of the hyatt and in front of the west yeah that street there's a hot dog cart there every night at dragon con and there was three guys uh great cosplay of captain america dumb dumb duggan and Hawkeye (laughs) sitting down in these three chairs in a semicircle eating hot dogs and oh, that's great! It was one. It, I was like, "How how have I come across this naturally in the wild? This is amazing." <laughs> that's perfectly hail hot dog. <laughs> oh, that's a touchy subject today. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. It really is. I shouldn't have gone there. <laughs> um, I, I'm kind of I'm I'm fascinated a little bit because the move 
uh, you moved, you made the move to LA like what was it about four years ago now? Uh, two years. Two years. Is time is weird. Wow. Isn't time weird? Yeah. <laughs> Just ask Doctor Who. And um, <laughs> like obviously, you know, that was a big decision. I I'm wondering if like how you feel because I I sometimes get the impression because I, I we have mutual friends and stuff that uh, try and encourage me to move to America and to try and okay you know, do things like that and I'm always kind of like that would be great if I already had a name for myself because I don't think mm. I don't think moving to a big pond when you're still a small fish in your small pond <laughs> is worthwhile but because as you said you were quote you know becoming a bit of a deal or aware of a bit of a deal at that in um in uh, minnesota yeah do you do you think your move to la you timed it right do you think you would have gone sooner i think some things would have been easier if i had come here sooner um i was certainly a big fish in a small pond in minnesota and that it was the nice kind of thing of even if people weren't personally familiar with me or my work, they had already heard my name. And it was pretty easy to be able to do things that I wanted to do. Okay. Uh, so that was, that was nice. And I had been doing the Fringe long enough that there, that there were people who treated me like a star. Because, you know, working a lot of different kinds of entertainment professions or creative professions, things like Fringe, they're great, but they uh, silo themselves off. And then within that silo, it's a whole different world. So within like the Fringe, I was a rock star for a while where like people would be afraid to talk to me kind of thing or <laughs> ask their friend of like, you really know him? Which I don't say out of any vanity, but just out of how funny human culture is that we subdivide and subdivide until we create all of these small communities where you can experience uh, what fame is in a very small way. Yeah. Um, and, the, and by so, the way, you could be scary to talk to on a day when you just haven't had your coffee. So that, like, that, is, that is understandable. Uh, for a comedian, I, I have a pretty good scary face. <laughs> you really do. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks, Val. <laughs> um, I'll try to scare people when I can. Uh, so I think what would have been easier, I don't entirely agree about the already having a big name because when I came here to LA and I got used to knowing the real place that, and got, uh, uh, some of the stereotypes out of my head, the cool thing about LA is it is just another community of creative people doing stuff. And it's just that when they get when your buddy gets his project all done and it goes really well and he or she is famous now and the actual community and in some ways the process of it doesn't feel any different than the way I grew up with my comedy buddies doing the fringe or working at the brave new workshop in Minneapolis or any of these other things, uh, where everybody had various status level and like, Oh, you're on the main stage. Oh, you had the number one show. It's just that here in Los Angeles, you're playing in the world's playground so that when you're successful, the whole world sees it. And obviously, the entertainment industry is difficult and labyrinthian and and scary and all that. So I do think it is bigger stresses and harder challenges. But in terms of just what you're doing on a day-to-day basis is you're 
you're meeting people, you're building community, you're finding the people that you like to work with who have similar voices, you're pursuing your projects. It's just that when you're successful, you're truly, truly successful. Yeah. Uh, speaking of kind of the community element of it, because um, and you've got a show coming up, which I I think you have time to plug on this show. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, but uh, Head Cannon, which is this is be the second time you've done that show. Um, yeah. With with uh, a previous guest on this podcast, Hal Lublin. I do feel a little bit like you've met a bit of a soulmate within that man. <laughs> I like Hal a lot. Hal and I get along together really, really well, and that is really nice. Um, yeah, I love performing with Hal, and we work together really well. Um, yeah, and it, so that all of that is great. Um, what do you think is the what do, you, what do you think the basis of a good working relationship is with somebody though? I think it is a mix of actual aesthetics like particularly if you're talking comedy just sense of humor what you think is funny and then how you actually work together interpersonally behind stage you know Mm. i think you have to get along you know it's it's show business and you have to get along in terms of the show and you have to get along in terms of the business right uh is that something that have you had times before when you've 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 thought you had a great kind of working relationship with somebody and a, and a, and it kind of fell apart? Oh yes, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I have had ups and downs with friends uh, in Minneapolis. You know what? There are hard parts where you start out as buddies and you go out drinking and play video games one night, and then the next night you're doing a show and those lines can get fuzzy about, well, we're just drinking and goofing around one night, and then the next night you're really on my back about learning my lines for this sketch. <laughs> and that's not cool, man. Uh, and I think you know, you uh, because you know me pretty well, and by the comment you uh, made about my scary face, uh, I can be very intense and obsessive. <laughs> yeah, and I... Bit. When it comes to doing a like a good job for a show, I want the show to be good for the audience, and I will feel bad if the show is not good. I'm not one of those people who can have a sloppy rehearsal process, have a show go wrong that is your fault. Like if you had worked harder, it would not have gone wrong, right? And then just like go have drinks with buddies and laugh it off like it's so funny, like that this happened, and that just is not who I am. Right. Uh, yeah, so so that's one of the things that worked well with Hal is uh, we both have a sense of humor. We like working together, and he wants the he really wants the show to be good too, and he wants to put his back into it and put the work into it to make sure that it is the show that we want it to be. Yeah, I'm al- I'm always surprised by people, and sometimes these people do incredibly well, but it's just. Um, who are okay with with the show appearing to be ramshackle? Um, because if nothing else, like even if you're performing towards ten people, I want it to look like you're the shiniest, classiest thing around. And it's it, it frustrates me when I see people who are kind of okay with like, oh, well, this didn't go right. Well, hey, this is fun, right, guys? And I'm like, no, it's not. It's not fun. <laughs> yeah, it's really not fun when it doesn't go well. The whole point is for it to go well. What's the worst show you've ever done? Oh, uh, boy. there I've had lots of bad shows where the show and the audience – 
is are just not a match. Like I kind of think of performing like a first date or like dating in general, where you the performer is on one side of the date, the audience is on the other side of the date, and you're trying to find your common ground and have some fun, have some laughs, laughs and if it goes really well, oh, it will be orgasmic for both of you. Yeah. You try um, to apply the other one with alcohol to ease things along. <laughs> and that certainly happens a lot at clubs and whatnot. Uh, so I, almost every bad show I've had has been, this is just a, this was like a blind date where people set up a comic mismatch that there's just no way that the show and the audience are going to have a good time together. Right. Um, when I was doing The Fringe, at one point, the executive director at the time was really trying to do outreach and trying to interest the local businesses in Minneapolis. And he asked me if I would go and do this fairly broad sketch. It was a one-person sketch, but it was, it was fairly broad. It was kind of a vaudevillian ironic mockery of vaudeville kind of thing okay. and like hey could you go do that as a to represent what fringes to get them interested and in maybe partnering with us to advertise the fringe and all that kind of thing so i was at like a in broad daylight in the middle of the afternoon in the most depressing most gray boardroom i have ever seen oh. with like a bunch of angry balding bankers who only care about money and golf and nothing else. <laughs> and like in the middle of their list of items to cover was comedy from this guy. And they, oh man, they tried to murder me with their eyes. <laughs> it was a room full of Joseph Scrimshaws. <laughs> <laughs> hey, come on. My eyes are pretty nice. <laughs> oh, they're, they're, they are beautiful, but they are also oh, intense. <laughs> they can be intense. They can. Uh, yeah, and the end of that bit was a, a pratfall, which was worked great for audiences in like a comedy theater who had come to see comedy, but just doing comedy for like five or six minutes, and then you know I threw myself on the floor of a boardroom, <laughs> and then no laughter, no applause, and I just have to slowly get up and say thanks, and they all just swiveled around in their seats and faced the other way, like great, done with that. I've I've seen your profile in person, and you, I wasn't aware that it was going to happen. I was on stage with you, and it scared <laughs> oh, the right. shit out of me because I <laughs> I legit thought you went on your face. <laughs> Acting, yeah, I know you're very good. Have you been trained? Uh, only through uh, no on the streets on the streets of Pratt Falls. Um, okay. My brother and I both really liked uh, physical comedy. Um, so all of the sketch, early sketches and plays uh, that I did, I would do pratfall. So and I would watch Jerry Lewis and Buster Keaton, and we would look for like, oh, how do they actually create that illusion? Mm. And some of it is, oh, it's not an illusion. Throw your face on the ground, and people will laugh. <laughs> but there, are, you know, there are tricks to it, obviously. Yeah. Uh... It, I've I is it I because we're gonna reveal some magic here. Um, hopefully to some people listening, I'm guessing you have to try and be as flat as you can when you hit the ground to make as big of a kind of a smacking sound. Yeah, and, and if your landing hand is nice and open palm, that certainly sells the the horror of it. You know, like any good comedy, it, it literally has to land well. And right. <laughs> with the pratfall, it really is giving it that sharp smack of landing. Um, I did, I, 
did a show with Bill Corbett on the very first Jonathan Colton cruise that has a big pratfall in it. And I did the thing where I threw myself in the air and landed well and all that and smacked something. I hadn't, we hadn't got a chance to look at the stage, so I didn't realize that the thing that I hit was actually a metal grate. So Ooh. it made, it didn't hurt my hand, but it made the most violent sound <laughs> I've ever heard. <laughs> Yeah, and it was great because there was like, ah, and then a bunch of laughs. Because there was someone was like, "Is he alive?" Okay, then it's funny. Yeah, it's that it's that weird thing is that you kind of genuinely have to make people worried about your safety for it to be a funny fall. Um, yeah, because otherwise it is just like that's great. Go back to tumbling school, three year old. Like, <laughs> now you're just a professional wrestler. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Didn't believe that at all. <laughs> Um, you, we've we've done it. We've done improv together, and you've said, like you said, you've done sketch and you've done stand up. Would you would you say the stand up is your favorite of those kind of performing arts? It is, I think, the most extreme. I think that might be the only time I've used the term "most extreme" sincerely. <laughs> it's <laughs> to the, extreme to the max. But it is like I, you know, I did a lot of acting and I did a lot of storytelling. I joined a storytelling group in Minneapolis, and that's what made me finally go like, "All right, you know, I think I want to do stand up because it was solo performance, and a lot of times I'd memorize the story, and it was kind of only a half step away from stand up. And having done a lot of acting, people say, you know, act. I can't remember. There's a famous person who had the quote. I don't remember who it is. Of like acting is standing naked in the middle of a stage and slowly turning. And I used to think that that was true of acting. And that's not true of acting. That is true of stand-up. Unless you're really playing a character in stand-up, it really is. There's no fourth wall. There's what is, at this point, an awkward agreement of, I am going to say things to you as myself and try to make you laugh and it's going to be incredibly uncomfortable for both of us if it doesn't happen like acting you are at least a different person if the comedy fails you're still telling a story stand up is by far like the most naked just do or die of any kind of performance that I've done which means that when it works and it almost always does I think for people who regularly do it uh, I feel it's great because, like, I did this really scary thing and it worked. It's and I, I you're right when you, you talk about kind of just it, it, you have to be kind of naked in the middle of the the stage because, uh, like, I've only been doing stand up for about a year and you know even at okay. that I haven't been intensely doing it either. I haven't been doing it, like a couple of gigs every week, but um, I noticed like I've I have about three sets. Uh, you know, I uh, three three opening sets. You know, like the seven minutes. Okay. <laughs> and um, the one, my first one that I wrote was very much me trying to tell, almost like, you know, uh, drunk at a bar, kind of like here's a s- anecdote about some crazy thing that happened to me when I was super drunk one time, or when I was with a girl <laughs> one time, and it it didn't land like any time I performed it, and it was it wasn't until like uh, like I had a big breakup last year that I wrote a bunch of material about that that stuff started landing because people don't really want to see a guy on stage brag or be like feel like they're super cool they kind of want to see yeah. somebody like you know be on the edge of a nervous breakdown <laughs> yeah i mean i think that's the the sweet spot of 
stand up and really a lot of kind of performance where it's this weird dichotomy of you want to be able to communicate to the audience. I'm comfortable and confident on stage. The actual performance isn't going to fall apart. So you, the audience can relax. You don't have to worry that this is going to fall apart and become awkward. You can just trust me. I know what I'm doing. And once you're radiating that energy, then you can be as vulnerable and as sort of self-effacing as you want because they know that this weird meta chemical human interaction of performance is going to be okay. Mm. You've talked to me about that before when we were doing improv because I think a lot of people get nervous about improv and you were like, I'm going to do a couple of like normal jokes just to let people know we're funny and we're smart. <laughs> like they, they, yeah, they, they can relax okay. about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what what do you because you're coming to Dragon Con this year, right? Yep. Um, what do you think about doing the convention scene? Um, as someone who's not there to just promote a TV show, how do you find it? Oh well, all so I do a lot of different conventions, and there's so many different kinds. Like Dragon Con is its own beast that I don't think there's anything else quite like Dragon Con, which is really cool. Um, but in general, for conventions. The audiences are super friendly, super smart overall, like just knowledgeable about a wide variety of things. And they're also really open because I've had other people say to me like, oh, you have to just go there and make jokes about the Arrow TV show or whatever. And like, (laughs) well, yeah, I can if I want. But then I can also just spin off and tell some weird story about my life. And geek audiences will always come along. With the on the ride for that, because I think in general, as pedantic as we can be as geeks, the the core of being a geek is being interested in new ideas, new worlds. You know, Star Trek <laughs> kind of philosophy of like being open minded in a strange way. Yeah, like once you get into fighting with about details about an existing property, there's no one on the planet more pedantic than geeks. <laughs> but in general, I think there's an open-mindedness. Nothing, things are rarely ever too weird for a geek. Like, right. you know, if you do a lot of comedy at clubs, if you go, you know, if you... I have a friend in L.A. who does spots at a big club and they put him on later because he does weird stuff. And he told me that. It's like, cool. And then his set was some jokes about pirates. And I was like, what, really? That's... That's the super weird stuff you're doing <laughs> is jokes about pirates. And they're great jokes. He's a great guy. I mean, nothing critical about it. Yeah. Uh, it's just the contrast between what is weird in a club versus what is weird at a convention. Yeah, People are just you, totally open-minded at a convention. You could schedule a very popular panel about pirates. Uh, oh, <laughs> you, you could ga- yes. engage people oh, yeah. for an hour about pirates at a, at a convention. Yeah, and even then they might be like, mm, pirates, I get it, but give me something a little weirder. You know, Are they zombies? <laughs> are they vampire pirates? Are they space pirates? Uh, that is the show yeah. Dragonfly. Or not the Dragonfly, <laughs> Firefly. <laughs> uh, yeah, I did... A, a show at Gallifrey One in Los Angeles this past February, which is the big Doctor Who convention. And I decided to structure it as my, a little bit of a life story told through Doctor Who about the significant points in my life where Doctor Who affected growing up, affected relationships. And by the time I got done writing the show, it was like 50-50 actual jokes about the television show 
in this phenomenon, Doctor Who. And the other 50% was just actually stories about my life. Mm. And going into it, I was like, well, some people might be like, I expected an hour of absolute Doctor Who jokes. Like, tell me a joke about Adric. Um, but That's no, a deep cut, people Joseph. really loved it. <laughs> it was fine. It was just fine at the Doctor Who convention, I'll tell you. <laughs> it's... Um... It's it's a strange beast. I I kind of uh, I think conventions because especially because they were like an entryway for me into in, some elements of comedy. Um, mm-hmm. They give you almost a false idea of of how forgiving and how like <laughs> open a, an audience can be. <laughs> uh, yeah, because certainly. Yeah, it's it's like cause it also is. But it, they, I find that that conventions have the weirdest heckling system. Oh yeah, because they won't ever tell you that you're doing shit. They'll usually chime in with a joke themselves, but they'll right. That's true. They'll say it in. A, they'll say a, usually a very obscure one. And if I ask them like, "What was that?" They'll shut up like straight away. So even though it could have been a great joke to work in, they won't kind of let you riff off it. Interesting. So, I I don't know if you've had that experience, but I've I've had it where if I say something and someone goes, "Yeah, not in episode eight and I'm like, "What?" <laughs> and they're like, uh, "Uh, nothing." I'm like, "Oh, okay. I would have liked to have known about that." <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. When if people do get shouty because conventions are big parties and everybody wants to be a part of the party, uh, I have found that if you start, if unless it's a very small group, if you start doing the Oh, what was that? And and they respond or they don't respond, then it becomes a conversation. And I like conversations when they're conversations. But <laughs> when I'm performing, I want to perform. Uh as Paul F. Tompkins says, it's a monologue. Uh yeah, and I, I found like a lot of times when I'll start a show at a convention, if it's a particularly big crowd, they'll have a I'll have a couple of people sort of like shouting out the uh, weird jokes or, or responses. Uh but if you keep focus and keep moving that that stops because you've got their attention and they're into the show. Yeah. It's, I always, whenever I tell people that I do stand up or comedy in general, they, they, one of the first things they'll always say to me is like, you know, like, Oh, I could never do that. Like hecklers are crazy, but I find heckling isn't that big of a problem. There's not that many people who really do it. And if they do, it's rare that they bring a show to a halt. Yeah, I think that heckling has been getting blown out of proportion on social media. Like, I would say in the last month, a lot of my comedy pals in L.A. have started to call websites and YouTube and on the comedian destroys heckler videos that are promoting the idea that hecklers are a big deal right. and that the best part of a comedy show is when some drunk asshole yells at you and then the comedian tells him to shut up like that's not <laughs> that's not the best part nope. of a comedy show uh yeah so i think the the idea of hecklers has exploded to be a little bit bigger than it actually is because like i mean i've never i've never seen one of your one of your shows and i've seen you perform like a, a good you know uh six or seven times now um, yeah and it's kind of it's uh, what I do like though is that you you do include uh, there's one bit that you have um, I don't even know if it's in your routine anymore but it's the egg advertisement yeah bit yeah uh, where you call two members of the audience up on stage with you to play out the scene 
has that I've every time yeah. I've seen it it's always gone really well because uh, people get like the, every everyone's reaction is a bit different and it's fun to kind of see how you play with that but have you ever had anybody who's just been absolutely derailing the whole thing no Good. no there that it is really golden in that it is very very it's funny if they do it exactly as I kind of want them to and it's funny if they totally screw it up yeah so I love doing that I love doing I love doing very like controlled specific audience interaction. That's a really fun and interesting thing to me. It's just the unrequested audience interaction. <laughs> um, you wrote a book. Yes. How was that experience for you? Oh, it was really fun. It was something that I had wanted to do for a long time. I was starting to perform uh, a lot of different places more, and people would ask me if I had merch, and I hadn't made an album yet. And my wife was just like, you have all of this writing already done. You've posted it in blogs. You've done it in shows. It would all make a good book. So you should write a few more and you should just do a book. And you're like, okay, good idea, wife. I will. <laughs> have you ever plans to dip your toe into it again? Maybe. Maybe. Uh, I'm working so hard on not wearing too many hats I thought because you were going to say I, pants there again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no pants, no hat. I really want to breathe well from both ends. Uh, yeah, I would like to eventually. It was a really fun thing to do, and I'm really, really happy that I did it. But I wouldn't want to do it again unless I had something that I really wanted to create. Like That first time was fun to do because a lot of that existed, and I wanted to create something like I was saying earlier about sort of existential dread of like, here's a physical thing that exists and will continue to exist. Right. Um, so part of it was all of that. So I wouldn't do another one unless I had a really strong specific idea and really wanted to. Okay. And it's, it's like you said before, it's a great thing that like when I'm dead, that will be on someone's shelf somewhere. Or at the yeah. very least in a charity shop somewhere. Yes, I will be haunting a charity shop at the very least. <laughs> how like how much does legacy like haunt you, or at least how much you're perceived to haunt you? Are you pretty comfortable with with how your brand is out there? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I I am happy to have the career in the fans that. I have. I would certainly like more. I think everybody does. Mm. Um, and in terms of legacy, I'm not really worried about like what's my obituary going to read. It's just that I have various goals and things that I would like to create, um, and I feel like I will be letting myself down if I don't. So there's like the financial part of it, and not legacy, but sort of fulfilling my own dreams. Okay. What, sounds... what? How many? Is there? Give Give me an example of a dream <laughs> that's still on the list. Oh, I would like. I, I've been doing a lot of work on writing uh, movies and televisions, and uh, I have a couple people I'm working on, and some things that might happen. It's good that I'm in LA because things are sort of moving on those fronts. Uh, I don't like to talk about anything until it is 100 percent done because I've oh. seen too many people go like, "Hey, I think I'm going to have a thing made," and like, "No, you're not." <laughs> oh yeah, no, yeah, I understand that. So, yeah, it sounds very wishy-washy, but I feel like I am on the right trail for getting uh, getting my, getting my things created in that, on screen, in that last. Yeah, well, I know um, you've been writing riff tracks for a while, right? Yeah, yeah, and that certainly exists, and that's that's a ton of fun and, and a whole different kind of writing challenge. Mm. Um, 
How do you do, but, like do you do you do that in a room with other writers or do you just send in your suggestions and they kind of they This is fascinating cuz every almost everybody thinks uh about it as like a suggestion They're like hey dump, put all your your jokes in a bucket <laughs> we'll sort them <laughs> out which that's uh, that's the way I, almost everybody was like how does that work you, you like send suggestions right um but the way it works is uh we divide the movie up and you get your section um, and I'm a contributing writer. So there's Bill, Kevin, and Mike, uh, who are, of course, the main riffers and the stars of Riff Tracks, and they do writing. And then there are two head writers who work – Riff Tracks is their job. They're producers and writers, uh, Sean and Connor. And then there are four or five contributing writers. So they will basically give us 10, 15-minute chunks of the movie, and then we write jokes for all of that. And then sometimes they give us notes and we do a revision uh, or they'll change a joke when they put the whole movie together. If people have made the same joke in response to something. Uh, so it, that's basically the way it works. It's more like stitching like a quilt together. <laughs> OK, I'm fascinated by that because uh, what if you get a, a crappy 15 minutes of the movie that like it's hard to riff on? <laughs> yeah. uh, almost all movies have crappy parts within a 10 or 15 minute section. You know, when you watch Rift Tracks and going back to Mystery Science Theater 3000, which Rift Tracks grew out of, it feels so effortless. But then when you're actually sitting down to write it, there are so many times where the movie fights you. Okay. And that's the real challenging part of the job. Like, you want to write really clever and surprising jokes, which I think Rift Tracks does a, a good job of. But a lot of the work is finding the exact pace, uh, the exact space for the joke and the sort of approach and the variety and things like that. Uh, kind of in a connected sense, but it kind of, I guess it goes back to some of your stand-up because you've done a lot of stand-up with themes like Star Wars and Doctor Who, which are things that I know you love. But yeah. do, do you think it's easier to make jokes about something that you think is great or something that you think is terrible? I think the terrible is a little bit easier. Two relatively recent Rift Tracks assignments, I wrote on a short, uh, I think it was just called Shapes You Need to Know or something like that. I can't remember. It's the just prototypical bad instructional video where it is a man from the 50s explaining what shapes are. And it's super slow. So he literally pulls out a red ball and says, do you know what this is? <laughs> It is a ball. Uh, and when that one got released, some of the Rift Tracks fans were like commenting, like, how the hell did you make it through this? But in a way, that one was pretty easy because it's, there was plenty of space in between the lines for the jokes, right. and it is obviously maddeningly stupid. So <laughs> you want to be really clever about how you say it's maddeningly stupid, but it's still, that's your perspective. Yeah. Uh, and then I did 10 minutes of The Force Awakens, which I love, Star Wars. I'm thrilled to do it. And there, there were parts where I, I would get distracted watching the movie because I'm just like, I love that scene. Oh, man, I love Maz Kanata's delivery. I'm like, oh, no, no, I need to find something to kind of poke fun at. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like that would be like, you know, being if I know you're I know you're a childless man, um, but <laughs> yes. having your child place in front of you and just like told, OK, now make fun of it. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Oh, you idiot. You have no object permanence, you little 
<laughs> dad, dad, it's father. Get it right. Um, <laughs> I'm actually just because we're, 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 we've mentioned Star Wars and I've tried to do my best to go this whole podcast without talking about Star Wars because <laughs> you talk a lot about Star Wars and a lot of different podcasts. I so I thought I might I give do. you a break. Uh, although I don't know if that's even a wanted break, but hell no ever. Um, one of the questions I got on Twitter to ask you, I think, and you've probably seen it yourself, I think, is both perfect and insane. Okay. Uh, Boba, Boba Fett, IG88, who I don't even know who the fuck that is. Oh, really? It's IG88. Oh, it's IG88. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I accept your apology. <laughs> is, I'm assuming that's a droid? Uh, yes, it is a killer droid. It is an assassin droid. Oh, okay. It is the big pencil-looking droid that is standing right next to Boba Fett in Empire Strikes Back. Okay, I will. I will remain to pay attention to that next time. And then Den- <laughs> Dengar, whose name I yeah. recognize, but I can't remember what he looks like. Dengar is one of the sad sacks of the Star Wars galaxy. He who gets made fun of all the time. He is also in the Empire Strikes Back bounty hunter scene. He has uh, cool armor in a big, long gun. He's got a scarred face. But then he has what appears to be just sort of bandages, perhaps toilet paper, wrapped around his head. And <laughs> when I was a kid, I thought he looked cool. But, man, people hate on Dengar these days. <laughs> okay. Um, he does look like the dumpiest, like, I want to be a bounty hunter, but I just got some stuff lying around the house. So I'll put on some pots and pans and toilet paper, and now I'm a bounty hunter. I'm here for the bounty hunter convention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he does look like he's a little bit like doing bad cosplay of Boba Fett, maybe. Um, really bad cosplay. So, yeah, so it's Boba Fett, uh, IG-88, Dengar. The question mm-hmm. is, and this is from J.J. Hawkins, the question is, fuck, marry, kill. <laughs> okay. Mm. Yeah, see, this, I, that's a deep and serious question to me. Right. Uh, fuck, marry, kill. All right. Uh, I am going to kill IG-88 because he is a merciless assassin droid. Uh, and I don't want to be married or have relations with a <laughs> merciless assassin droid. I can't find uh, either one would be pleasant, though. No. Yeah, I, a, as a married man, I recognize that one of the things that is important about marriage is not only passion, but consistency and trust and uh, dependability. And Boba Fett is too flashy. He is too self-involved. Uh, so I will fuck him. Fuck Boba Fett, and I will marry poor Dengar. <laughs> but you know what? I feel like he'd be really grateful. I think he would be. He'd be he I would, think he would be. He would be really like a sensitive lover. I feel like he would be very appreciative of your love. Um, <laughs> okay, here's here's my thing. Um, the other I, thing with fucking Boba Fett is he would not take his armor off, so it would really just be dry hump Boba Fett because he's not he's not going to take his armor off. He never lets his guard down. It, uh, yeah, he just the whole time would be holding a, a pistol at your head uh, <laughs> while you're doing something. While I'm dry humping his armor, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, I never understood the Boba Fett love. Uh, I never understood the, what? the I never understood people's passion for him. I feel like I need to go flip a table over, and I'll be right back. <laughs> yeah, but he's he's such a he's such a small character, which is fair enough. I understand people falling in love with small characters. That's that's not a big deal. But as a small character. I, f- I apart from standing there 
he doesn't do much. Like, he kind of is incompetent when it comes to the fight scene in uh, Return of the Jedi. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, he gets, like, I think, is, is, does he get shot by, like, oh, no, he gets knocked over by just, like, Chewbacca screaming. Um, no, uh, no, no. No, I, I figured you would correct me on this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Han bumps into him. Oh, okay. But doesn't Han bump into him because he falls over because Chewbacca screams? Uh, Boba Fett is distracted by attempting to kill Luke Skywalker. We know now that he hates Jedi because Mace Windu killed his father, Jango Fett. Uh, and then Chewbacca tells Han that Boba Fett is nearby. And Han says, Boba Fett, where? And turns around and clumsily hits him without meaning to with the butt of a, uh, a rifle stick thing. And then Boba Fett goes flying into the Sarlacc. Okay. And then there's a disgraceful burp. <laughs> Do you think are you one of the people who believes he dies in that Sarlacc pit? Well, this is the whole thing: is uh, in old expanded universe, Boba Fett came out of that Sarlacc and had a million adventures. And yeah. now in new canon, it's not clarified yet whether he has survived. I think he will survive, and I think that he will. He galaxy. Do you think he'll actually actually show, make him show up in a future movie? I think one of the movies, yeah, uh, not. Probably not the main trilogy movies, but they're doing the Star Wars story, the anthology movies, and I think he'll pop up in one of those. Okay. Um, so, it, would he be? Who would be your favorite Star Wars character? Who would be my favorite Star Wars character? Yeah. Uh, I go. Oh man, there's so many. Uh, I love. I love Luke Skywalker. I love Obi Wan Kenobi, and I really like Emperor Palpatine. Those are probably my big three. Okay. That's hard. The Boba Fett love, I will say, if you if you want me to address why people love Boba Fett, sure. <laughs> you don't want that at all. <laughs> no, I think I I think I don't I don't think I'll understand it, but I think a clarification will not go astray. Okay, so I think the love started with Empire Strikes Back, uh, where you don't have the baggage of his goofy, unfortunate death in Return of the Jedi. And there was so little science fiction, geek stuff on film. The sheer just design of how amazingly cool his costume looked was legitimately powerful. And then it was a very successful example of mystery being good storytelling, where the fact that you didn't know much about him made him even more enigmatic of like, who could he possibly be? What's under the mask? He's the only one who could ever outsmart Han Solo. And people had years to make up their own story of what Boba Fett was. And I think that's the beginning of, of why people love him. Okay, but he didn't outwit Han Solo. I'm uh, right. he, uh, like, in, he, in Empire Strikes Back, he does. But it's, here's the way I see it. And again, you'll, I'm sure you'll correct me. <laughs> I'll offer my opinion. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, he gets, Han Solo gets rat, ratted out by Lando. The Empire come, Darth Vader captures him, and gives him to Boba Fett. So Boba Fett just uh, basically turns up after getting a call. No. So uh, that is just incorrect. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. And <laughs> <laughs> such an asshole. Uh, Dengar's not going to want to marry me. Um, no, so 
Han Solo, getting out of the asteroid field, comes up with the trick of latching the Falcon onto the Star Destroyer, waiting until they dump their garbage and then just floating away with the rest of the trash. Boba Fett is enough of a scoundrel that he's onto that trick. So he waits and, and thinks like, ah, Solo might be pulling this old trick. Right. And he sees, he's there in his ship, Slave One, he sees the Millennium Falcon try to float away with the garbage, and he follows. That's the only reason anyone from the Empire knows that Han and Leia are at Bespin. The Empire never would have found him if Boba Fett hadn't got that one up on Han. So you're saying he didn't get routed out by Lando? Well, once uh, the Empire got there, like Lando says, the Empire gets there before Han does, and they say, like, well, you can turn your friend over to us, or we can take your city. And Lando's like, yeah, okay, yeah. I'll lure him in. Lando's not that bad of a guy. He didn't really have a great choice. Okay. No, you're right. I've I've misread that situation. You have made it clear for me now. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you regret bringing up Star Wars. <laughs> well, no, this is like, I really, I kind of appreciate the, the level that people, because I don't, I, the closest thing I have to that is Star Trek The Next Generation. That was a okay. thing that I was super, super into as a, as a, as a teen and a young man. Um, and, um, but even then I don't have the level of like knowledge where I could like name like that one character that was in that one episode. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and I'm really appreciative of, of the folks who have kind of like, they've, you know, memorized the many different versions of the star Wars encyclopedias that have come out over the years <laughs> and, and know like the, the number for the type of ship design that, you know, they see and, and stuff like that. I, I really do appreciate that. Cause I don't think, and this is probably comes back to, cause me and my, Myself, I feel I, I you are a model of a a like uh, career wise. You're you're I think you're me in like ten years time. I've always kind of thought that like you know when I'm in ten years from now, I'd like to be in your position. Oh, uh, that's nice. Because um, I think we both have that thing of we like doing a number of different things. Yeah. Um, and so like I've always been. Uh, uh, appreciative of folks who have like a obs- and you know ironically obsessive because you have a podcast <laughs> obsessed. I'm working yeah. in all the plugs I can Joseph oh you're doing great <laughs> but uh, the people who can be obsessed about one particular thing and dedicate their knowledge or a large part of their brain to towards the inf- all the information surrounding that because I think I have a good general knowledge of a of a bunch of dumb stuff but I, yeah. I don't have amazing knowledge about one dumb thing. Um, yeah. Star Wars has been a part of my life for a long time. So some of it was just in there. And then over the last year or so, I've been hosting the, these Star Wars podcasts. And now it's getting to be just so much a part of, uh, of my life that it, it – you know, when, when I have to take a step back and realize that there are people – who don't know who Dengar is, which is totally reasonable. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm pretty far down this wormhole. What do you think 16-year-old version of you would, would think of your life right now? Oh, I think that, they, that 16-year-old me would be shocked and thrilled uh, by most of my life and a little disappointed with me in a, in a couple of things. <laughs> 
But I, I, I say you have a, a wonderful wife who I've yet to meet. I'm very sad that I haven't met right. wife yet. Every, <laughs> everyone tells me how amazing she is, and I got. I, She's great. Yeah, but uh, that's another bonus that teenage you can be very excited about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Teenage me was very, very concerned about uh, you know meeting a nice woman, uh, <laughs> and I, I did well there. Um, so what I usually tell, because uh, we're we're at our we're at our hours, so I feel I always say that like it's a therapy session. We're at our hour. <laughs> and um, I always like to ask people what song you'd like to uh, end on. So, uh, have you? Can you think of one that uh, you'd like to play us out on? Oh wow! Uh, how about this? Is it is it okay if it's something that you might need to work to find? Oh, yeah, I will work the internet as hard as I can, and if there's any, if I need a backup, I will let you know. Okay. Uh, so when my wife and I got married, we made a mixed CD uh, at the time for all of the guests. We put music that meant a lot to us. And uh, I grew up really being a fan of Guns N' Roses. And my wife is very kind and understanding and said, you can put Guns N' Roses on there. <laughs> and almost everything else was classy music. Like my wife likes Celtic music. So there's some nice Celtic music. <laughs> and there was some Ella Fitzgerald and... Fred Astaire and Frank Sinatra is all very, very classy. Uh, and then at the end, it had Welcome to the Jungle. And we almost released it like that. And it was like, I can't quite do this. <laughs> I can't bear to do this to our kind wedding guests. So I found a lounge cover of Welcome to the Jungle by a man named Richard Cheese. So oh. if you can find the Richard Cheese version of Welcome to the Jungle. That will you can not play be hard to that. find at all, my friends. Um, <laughs> I, I have, I have uh, downloaded many a Richard Cheese album in the past. Uh, it's pretty great. But okay, perfect. Yeah, we'll play it on that. Um, so is there anything you want to plug before you go? Uh, no, I think just the general plugs are Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Joseph Scrimshaw. I've got a bunch of different live shows, stand-up and conventions and live obsessed coming up. And you can find all of those on josephscrimshaw.com. Okay. Bye-bye, everybody. can find whatever you may need if you got the money honey we got your disease in the jungle welcome to the jungle watch it bring you to your na 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 na